lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you've never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, everybody, here we go. Welcome to episode number 115 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, September the 25th, 2021, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I want to thank last Saturday's guests, Adam Gray, Eric Myers, as well as Joe Labello for joining on After Hours, also known as Silver Jackify. Later tonight on After Hours, be sure to stick around. Our guest will be David Rosfeli from Guess the Grade. He is a I want to say professionally trained card grader. So some tips and tricks coming out of that show later on tonight. Tomorrow, guys, tomorrow on Collectible Live on the Collectible YouTube channel, our guest will be none other than Carvin Chung. So check that out, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, tomorrow night, later, I got a busy weekend, guys, a busy, busy weekend. Tomorrow night on this channel at... 10 o'clock Eastern, I'm going to be hosting an F1 Tops Dynasty break. 50 plus boxes should be really exciting. Carvin will also be joining there as well as my friend Stephen, whose boxes these are. And he's looking forward to breaking them with uh, with all of us. So that should be a lot of fun. Also want to let everybody know next Saturday on the show, our guest will be uh, PSA's lead evaluator, Michael Osaki and Slab Shelf's John Bear on The Late Show. I want to shout out, as I always do, my guys at the Big Three Hockey. Check them out on Instagram. They're on the ticker right now. They recently acquired the one-of-one gold precious metal gems, Connor McDavid from the Skybox Metal Universe. So uh, pretty happy and excited for for, uh, Karn and crew over there. Anyway, check them out. I also want to shout out, make sure everybody is aware, the Sport Card Expo in Toronto, November 11th, 14th, 11th to 14th. I will be there. I cannot wait. We are well overdue for an expo. I also want to shout out Whatnot and congratulate them on their Series C capital raise. Way to go, guys. And I want to shout out all the podcast listeners. You know, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for tuning in. And then all of the subscribers and watchers of this show, just past 3,700 subscribers. Want to thank you all very much. If you are not yet not yet subscribed, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. I greatly appreciate it. As always, everybody, tonight your comments, your questions are in play. So don't be shy. Let's see what you got. And let's now get to tonight's guest. He worked at the NBA for 10 and a half years before landing at Golden Auctions in April of this year. His favorite teams are the Red Sox, Celtics, Bruins, and Patriots. His favorite athletes, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Tom Brady, Pedro Martinez, and Ken Griffey Jr. He is originally from Boston, Massachusetts, currently hailing from New York City, New York. Let's bring him out, Sam Farber. Welcome to Sports Cards Live. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. That was, that was a nice intro. That might have been my best intro. I feel like I'm ready to box. Right. That's it. That's it. As if you're walking into the boxing ring. That's how I try to do it. And uh, well, glad to have you, Sam. Um, you know, obviously, as, as you know, I've had uh, the boss. Ken Golden's been on the show a couple times, but uh, it's nice to have somebody else from Golden uh, who's sort of more, I guess, behind the scenes, sort of 
running things. And um, obviously, I, I know Ken is very involved, but it's good to have someone else and hear another perspective on the hobby and on the, the auction um, landscape these days. So uh, before we get into it, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, your history in the hobby? Yeah, so I grew up in Massachusetts, as you mentioned in the intro. And for anybody who's from Massachusetts or the greater New England area, sports is religion there. It, it really is. It's the lifeblood of, of the whole region. And my family was no exception. We were absolutely obsessed. And so I grew up just completely obsessed with sports and, you know, the Red Sox, the, the Pats, the Celtics. And my dad was a lover of memorabilia, is a lover of memorabilia to this day. Um, every like spare wall in our house growing up was filled with signed pictures. It wasn't just Boston athletes. He was like a real lover of especially the history of baseball. So we had a bunch of Mickey Mantle stuff. We had Ted Williams stuff. We had Ty Cobb stuff. We had just all kinds of stuff. You know, he has almost a hundred signed baseballs. Every present I got growing up as a kid, at least like every Hanukkah, I would get at least one signed baseball. I still have them, some really amazing ones um, that I collected over the years. And I was, you know, hugely into baseball cards, which again, my father instilled in me. And I think honestly, so I'm 34. Uh, my dad, you know, is in his mid sixties now, but I think a lot of it was, you know, unfortunately probably created some of the junk era, but a lot of my dad's, you know, um, inspiration to get me into cards probably came from the fact that like so many of his contemporaries, you know, he didn't treat his Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris cards very well as a kid, his parents threw them out. And so, you know, literally when I was born until, you know, I left their house every year, he'd buy me a complete top set. He would, you know, buy me sealed wax. So he taught me the love of collecting and taught me the love of, you know, baseball cards, memorabilia and the history of the game. So it's very much uh, instilled in me and part of who I am. So it's not super surprising um, in hindsight that I ended up finding the hobby, you know, at some point in my career. And we'll, we'll get to how you got to Golden because the story is pretty interesting and exciting. But before we do that, I'm curious. So your your father, sports fan, uh, what, is he happy that you're working in the hobby now uh, full time? Does does he is he more interested in your in your um, it's, I mean, obviously, your 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 last job was very interesting, too. But has his interest in this current job? Is it sort of more keen now uh, towards the collectibles? I think so. He was definitely very interested in my last job because um, we, we had season tickets to the Celtics growing up and he was a huge is a huge uh, NBA fan. But I think being in this job actually made him like fall in love again with a lot of the collectibles that he has. Um, so I think he's like keenly interested in both, but I think he was interested in them for, for different reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, he definitely, you know, is has sort of like reinvigorated his, you know, his collecting and like that little bug that's in him. But he's definitely incredibly excited about it. Yeah, it's it's super cool. I'm excited about it for you myself. So, okay, I want to get into uh, your 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 journey, if you will. But before we do, let's uh, let's let a few more people pour in here and let's uh, let's go to the comments and just say hello to the audience. We got Troy here. We got Studios back as always. Frank, good evening to you. Dennis, we got Jeff, J.W. Fulcher, episode 115. Great to have you. Lapper in the house. Jason Pringle, we got Joe. 
Pringle drove for 14 hours today. I'm glad you made it home for the show, Jason. Yes, Jordan, we will be breaking 50 boxes of F1 Tops Dynasty tomorrow night. I won't be breaking it. Others will be, but we'll be doing it on this channel. Global, good evening. Tom Bullard, good evening. Scott Mahati, good evening. We got Spurs cards. We got we got Rich Frank. We got Pittsburgh. Anthony, how are you? Jeffrey Hart, Rich Frank, Tom Bullard again. We got Mike Wick, good evening. And Studio throws a tip my way. Thank you very much. Can't... Uh, can't complain about that. Much appreciated. Michael Corbley, good evening to you. Yamwax in the house. Always good to see you, Corey. And Rich Frank says three outs. Stress up. Slam Diego showed up. Good evening, Rich. And Daniel uh, Fowl five ball in the house. And Daniel Busby, been waiting all day. That last 30 minutes is the longest. Well, I'm glad you are here. Joe Perot says, welcome, Sam. I know it was before your time, but must have been some Fisk 1975 Game 6 ALCS home run discussions in your house. Oh yeah, I had yeah. I had a little CD-ROM that had some of the greatest moments in baseball history, um, and that was prominently featured. I still remember the call. It's it's terrific. Definitely before my time, but I was definitely, you know, taught to love that moment for sure. Unfortunately, right you know, everything that happened after that moment wasn't so great, but that moment itself was. <laughs> for sure. Okay, man. Well, listen. Let's uh, let's get into it. So, you just came off of a 10 and a half year stint working at the N the NBA, the National Basketball Association. So before we talk about the job, how did you get the job there? And kind of wh where were you? Were you right out of college when you started? How did that all uh, come together for you? Yeah, so um, I went to Penn in, uh, in Philadelphia. Um, I graduated in 2009. In 2009, there was, you know, a massive economic recession. It was a terrible job market. Everybody in my family is a doctor. I'm obviously not a doctor. I didn't have a lot of fantastic uh, career advice at that point, especially given the job economy that I was entering. And so I took the first job that I was offered at the time, which was at a really small pharmaceutical consulting and advertising company. And I figured, hey, if I'm not going to be a doctor, at least maybe I'll enjoy the business of medicine. And so that was what led me there and also, frankly, just opportunity. And I quickly realized I didn't, I didn't love that industry at all. I wasn't very happy at the job. The thing that I've loved most in this world, my whole life was sports. And everyone told me it's, you know, it's aspirational, it's difficult, you know, good luck kid. And there was this moment I had, I remember it vividly about, I'd say May, end of May, my first year of working. And the thing about academia is that in academia, there's there's a beginning and an end, right? Everything is finite. So if you don't like a class, the semester ends. You don't like a you know a whole year. You're like ah you know my tenth grade year. It's that's awkward. It's an awkward year. I don't want to be there anymore. Well, guess what? You'll eventually have summer break and you'll come back into a new year. So there's always this progression that happens and there's a finite end to everything. And I had this moment where I was really unhappy and it was at the end of what would have been a semester, and I realized oh my God, this isn't going to end. This just goes on forever. Like there's this is like an endless semester. And I thought, you know what? I had like, it was not a midlife crisis. It was, you know, maybe a quarter life crisis, whatever it was. I was like, you know what? If I'm going to have to get up and do something every day and that thing is never going to end, it better be something I enjoy doing. So that was the moment where I decided that I was going to try and go for this dream of being in sports. And it was really rocky at first. I basically didn't know anybody 
And so I just cold emailed a bunch of people. I chased people into elevators who would come and visit our office if they had any connection uh, that I possibly knew to sports. And um, one day I saw a Facebook message from a, from a friend from college. And it just said, who wants to work at the NBA? And he worked at Goldman Sachs. Um, he was an investment banker. And so I hit him up and I said, yeah, I'd love to work at the NBA. Like you work at Goldman Sachs. What can you do for me? And he said, he's like, look, my boss has a friend from college who has, who's an executive there. I don't know anything about the job. I don't know if you're qualified. I don't really know who she is, but I'm going to give you her email address and you can just email her and see what happens. So I did. So I emailed her and I waited. I didn't get a response. And a couple of days later, I got a call from uh, Human Resources at, at the MBA saying, hey, would you be interested in like coming in for an interview for a position? Um, and so I did. And the position was for the uh, marketing role for what was at the time called the Development League, the Minor League, um, and sort of a, a side dash of social media because social media was was first, you know, was just sort of taking hold for businesses at that time. It was 2010. Um, so I, I, I did this interview. I think the interview went well. Um, I met the, the woman who was friends with, you know, my friend's boss. Turns out she had also gone to Penn. So we had that connection. I think that's why I caught her eye. So I had a couple of good interviews and they gave me a 10 month contract position that was due to expire, uh, the day that the CBA expired in 2011 on July 1st. So I figured when I was entering that building for the first time, I thought, you know what, this is probably only going to be for 10 months, but this is going to be an awesome 10 months. At least I'll have sports on my resume and maybe I'll be able to leverage it into another sports job down the road. So that was, that was how I started at the NBA. It was basically just, you know, taking a swing at a 10 month job, um, to do minor league marketing. And, uh, and that's how I got my start there. So kind of a crazy, crazy serendipitous beginning, but we all need those moments. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats. What, what a, what a great kind of launch pad that that's become now for you. And uh, so, so let's get into then the job itself at the NBA with, with a bit of a, 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 the context being how it set you up for where you are now. So um, your job at the NBA was content, I believe content and uh, really social media, but the way you, you explained it to me, I really want the audience to get a, a feel for this was, where were we as 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 a as as in culture as far as social media goes and and kind of how did that all come together yeah so the the job as i mentioned was you know was the on its face supposed to be development league marketing and a side of, of social media but as you know a society social was really taking hold for businesses and you know at that time i you know i still remember when i first got there one of the handouts that they gave me in my welcome material was a, you know, sort of one sheet that somebody at the company had written. And it was basically weighing whether Facebook or MySpace was going to win the battle. And at the time in 2010, that was actually a conversation that was still happening. So just to give it some, give everyone some perspective as to where we were uh, and where the social landscape was, that's where we were. So Twitter was less than a year old. Facebook existed, YouTube had been there for a little while, and there was really not much else. Um, you know, Snapchat and Instagram and all these things ended up coming later. So 
it was, you know, it was definitely the, the early days and it, you know, the job quickly became, you know, all social media. And frankly, there, there weren't very many of us. It was me and it was, it was one other guy who goes by ice. His name is his actual name is Jim. And it, and it was, it was my boss, Melissa, um, who oversaw a bunch of things. And those are really the only three people at the entire MBA who focused on this business at all. And it really just became, you know, the like entirety of my life. So I would spend my day thinking of, you know, of content, posting content, forging relationships, managing relationships with these platforms, figuring out what worked, figuring out what didn't work, figuring out how social media could benefit groups within, within the MBA, our sponsorship group, our marketing group, all those different things. And then at night, we would actually switch off shifts of live tweeting games. So we would sit there at night and we would watch games on League Pass and I would follow them on the NBA app. And I would actually tweet out the scores and tweet out what was happening in the game. So that's that's how like bare bones and early days it was when I started there in 2010. And so for the first five years I was there, it, you know, it, it obviously social as a whole grew like crazy, but it also evolved as a business. So not only did more platforms show up, the platforms became a heck of a lot more sophisticated. The type of content that required or that was required to be posted on these platforms became a lot more produced. So back in those days, you know, when it first started, it was a lot of text only. And then there were external apps in a lot of in a lot of cases you had to use. There's an app called TwitPick. There's an app called TwitVid for the social OGs. You'll remember all those. And so you had like a link out to even include media in a tweet. Like that's how crazy it was. But then all of a sudden these platforms started to host media. And so I really, for that first five years, I built out our, you know, our digital content business. Um, but so many different facets grew. There was a licensing and business development, you know, function that needed to happen that I was sort of running in a partnership function, both internal and external. There was analytics now. And so this cottage industry of social analytics that existed so people could measure what was going on. And then, as I mentioned, there, there was, you know, a huge production requirement. So there were just so many different facets of it um, that, you know, about five years into my career, um, we had a reorg at the company and we just thought collectively about what the best way to handle digital and sort of new media as a whole was. And so it was at that point that I switched um, roles slightly and uh, my role for the, the second five year stint I was there um, was focused on three primary areas. It was digital strategy. So it was content strategy and platform strategy and, you know, sort of what we do digitally generally. It was digital partnerships. So it was managing the relationship with, you know, digital companies and it was digital business development. So it was licensing content basically to any company that wasn't a linear network, um, which for those who know the business of sports, that's, that's how every league and team's bread is buttered for the most part is, uh, is content licensing and media distribution. So that's, you know, that's how my role sort of shifted. So it became a lot more from a content role the first five years to a BD role the second five years. What caught my ear there was the licensing piece, of course. And, uh, and given what's, what's developed in the last uh, month or so in the hobby, I wonder, does your experience at the NBA dealing with content licensing give you any insights into 
the sports card licensing and what may have gone on uh, with with Fanatics and the NBA or, and, and the NBA uh, PA? I mean, look, at like on their face, like licensing deals are licensing deals, right? I mean, so there's the every relationship is is unique. Every relationship is complicated. And at the end of the day, it comes down to like leverage and competition. So I, you know, I had dealt with Fanatics a little bit when I was there, um, but mostly at arm's length. I collaborated with them on a couple of different things, but I wasn't the one who led who led that relationship. Um, so I don't have a ton of inside knowledge on what exactly went down, but I think it, look, I, I think the way that fanatics has operated historically, you know, this isn't that surprising. I mean, Michael Rubin, you know, did a terrific job when he started the company of, you know, he tried to get, um, all the sports leagues to sign on with him. Didn't work. He went and he ended up aggregating the players associations and then he used that to exert pressure on the leagues to get the leagues. He's, he's a master aggregator of rights. Um, but I think the other piece is that, that I think, you know, again, this is like sort of a tenant of licensing is, you know, look, leagues, like yes, they like to have the most money and all of that, but they also like to, you know, enjoy in potential upside and have a stake in things. And I think, you know, I don't know the details of these deals, but I would imagine that those elements and some of that's been floated like those elements are probably you know present in some of these deals you know whether it's it's you know an equity you know ownership stake from the league perspective or some kind of like you know robust or more expanded royalty structure you know i think they they spoke their language they knew what leagues wanted and you know and i think that's probably you know that plus obviously a gigantic sum of money is probably what what got the deal done, you know, and also is probably built on years. The other piece of licensing, obviously, is when you have partners you've worked with for a really, really long time and you have those relationships and you've built the trust, it makes getting deals done a heck of a lot easier. Um, so I bet it was probably all those all those facets. Okay, no, that, that's some cool, uh, cool commentary. Good insight there. Um, so you your, your role at the NBA, uh, as as far as social media goes, seems to me like you you were a bit of a pioneer as far as taking sports onto all the social media platforms, and uh, and, and I'll use your your kind of that whole that whole method of communicating with with the fans being a little bit more ro- or much more robust than it really had ever been before. That direct communication um, was that. And, and is that something, is that experience something that you are bringing to your role at, uh, at Golden now? And is that something that kind of, and I want to get into how you got the job at Golden and all that, but is, is it something that, uh, that you were able to sort of, um, you know, get your feet running with right away as soon as you got there? Yeah, I think social media is the front line of communication for most companies and, we have the incredible advantage in the hobby and in collectibles that there's this robust community that exists and there's a lot of passion in it, right? It's not, you know, I said this about my old job and I would say it about this job too, and no offense to anyone who works at like Unilever or Dial, but like we're not pushing soap, we're not pushing consumer packaged goods that, you know, people may not care that much about. And you really have to like force people or get like insanely creative and go really far afield from your core product to get them to care. We don't have that problem. So 
A hundred percent. I mean, I think that, you know, brand should, should have that direct interaction with, you know, with its customers and with the broader community that it's in. And so look, we're still like, you know, I've been at this job now for just about five months and we're still sort of figuring out what exactly our voice is going to be and what our content mix is going to be. What you'll see from us is that I do want it to be conversational. I do want us to share things that are going on more broadly to, you'll see some user generated content on our feeds. I, I like to, I, I want to be a part of the community. I want to be a part of the broader conversation. Um, and then I, I also want to, you know, obviously further the goals of the, of golden as, you know, as a business as well. And it's achieving that balance. That's really the art of this. Um, but that's sort of what we, that is what we did at the MBA. It was, you know, being a part of the conversation. I, I would always say, you know, especially with Twitter on with the MBA, which has a, a really special relationship. And I'm sure my friend TJ who runs sports there isn't watching, but he and I were in many panels together. And we would always say that, you know, NBA Twitter was like a living, breathing thing. And the NBA wasn't the thing that was driving it. It was just a participant. It was a participant in this living conversation, this community that existed that was bigger than it, even though it was a, a primary voice, it was a significant voice. I feel that way about, about the hobby. I feel that way about collectibles. I want us to be a part of the broader conversation. We aren't the whole conversation, but we should participate in it and be a part of it and be a steward of it. So um, yeah, I, I think to answer your question, absolutely. I take a lot of those same principles and apply them here. I like how you said that, you know, at Golden, we're trying to find our voice uh, and, and determine what that's going to be. But I, I need to I need to let you know that uh, Ken Golden fa- has found his voice in, in the, in the <laughs> Certainly not. That does that statement does not apply to Ken. It doesn't apply to Ken. Voice. That's, that's a separate, Ken's a separate entity from Golden Auctions. Yes. For sure, for sure. Okay. Uh, all right. So I want to uh, just address a couple of quick comments here. Uh, I want to say good evening to one for the task. Uh, Jeff Cow, thank you very much for the super sticker. Greatly appreciate it. There is a question from uh, a Facebook viewer. This is uh, from Austin. He wants to know, Sam, any advice for someone who had sports management program experience to find a potential position working in sports? I mean, look, what I would say is, A, look, like, the sports leagues all do post their positions. Like, I would be insanely aggressive about, like, checking their job boards. They tend, so I can tell you, the NBA's business planning, it's a little weird. Their fiscal year starts October 1st, and so that's when they'll get positions approved. Oftentimes, those positions get posted either like the end of the calendar year or the beginning of the, of the following year. A lot of the sport, other sports leagues, they work in a calendar year fiscal. And the reason I'm bringing up fiscal years to answer your question is because oftentimes when new positions, you know, sort of are hatched in the mind of a hiring manager or a need is, you know, a request is, is in for, you know, a position that somebody needs, it has to go through a big approval process. And usually in sports leagues in particular, and with teams, with leagues in particular, it, these positions end up having to go to a group of owners uh, to be approved. Now, it's it's often they will not like sit there and read through every single one, but they actually do have to be approved before they can go, you know, get released into the wild. So one of the, like, I would say January, like after the new year is a really good time when you're going to see a lot of positions get posted at sports leagues. I would say couple that with a LinkedIn search, 
of people like use those keywords and find the hiring manager or find people at, you know, depending on what level level you are or you want to get to. So if you are applying for manager position, find directors, find vice presidents that have those same titles and hit them up, hit them up on LinkedIn. I had a lot of people when I was trying to break into the industry that were really nice to me, that had no reason to be nice to me. I didn't end up getting jobs because of it. I got close a couple of times with, I got close with ESPN once and it was because somebody who didn't know me at all, cold outreach, who I chased into an elevator was really nice to me and introduced me to somebody. And I, and I asked him like, Hey man, whatever can I do to thank you? And he said, all I ask you ever do is that you pay it forward when you see people in the position you were in. So I would say you're going to look, plenty of people will ignore you, but you will have people who are wired more like me, who will, who will look at people who are like earnestly trying to get in, who have, you know, who have sports management experience, who it looks like from their LinkedIn are doing everything in their power to put themselves in the best possible position. You will have people who will respond to you. So right. I would say it's like, it would be a combination of, of those two things. And then you, like, you just have to get, get lucky, but if you're, if you're persistent, um, and you've got the, you've got the goods and you've got the experience, uh, you, you can get these jobs. They are attainable. Good advice. Take that to, to heart, Austin. Okay. Before we find out, and I'm curious how you got the job at Golden, I want to know what was it like for you to resign from the NBA? How did that feel after over 10 years there? felt terrible. <laughs> it felt really terrible. Um, I told you in our prep, but I'll say it to the, to the whole group, cause I'm not embarrassed about it. I legitimately cried after I resigned because for me, um, it was a situation where, you know, I dreamed of working in sports and I grew up worshiping sports and, you know, I got this 10 month like role. I felt like I was like clinging to the light raft, like hanging off the back of the, of the boat. And I like managed to climb onto the ship. And I, you know, I'd gotten promoted um, to senior vice president in the winter of, of, I guess, 2020. And so it was like everything I'd, I'd ever wanted. And I never, ever, ever, ever thought I would see the day where I would call the, you know, the president of content and media distribution and tell him I'd quit. Like it was, it was a gutting, it was a gutting experience, even though, you know, I knew why I was doing it, you know, it was for good reason, all of that, but it was a very difficult moment for sure. Yeah. That that's gotta be a, a tough, a tough resignation to tender when you're working for such a, an organization like, like the NBA. So let's now talk about your, your job at golden auctions and um, how did it, how did you kind of how, how did you get the job yeah how did you how did you how did that all happen to, what was it that convinced you to to resign from the nba and and accept the position at golden it was a few different things so in 2018 or so 2017 2018 i got back into collecting cards again so I've, I've said this to people before and I've helped people sort of onboard into the hobby or like rediscover the hobby in the last bunch of years. But I, uh, I think everybody who collected as a kid has this thing like burning in them, even if they don't know it's there. And the moment that you like rediscover it and reignite it, it's like you never left. So I got really addicted to, to buying cards and I was prospecting and I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff and I was loving it. And so I was like definitely in tune with the hobby and I saw 
like, oh my gosh, it's growing so much over these years, like 2018, 2019, 2020, you see it like really start to, to grow. Um, and I saw a tweet, so I got my MBA job from a Facebook post and this job came as a result of a tweet. Um, and I saw a tweet from Darren Ravel that the churning group made an investment in golden auctions. I was familiar with the brand, I was familiar with Ken and they named Ross Hoffman CEO. And I recognize that name um, as somebody who I had worked with uh, in my last life. So Ross, who's now the CEO of Golden, Ross was uh, very early at Twitter. He was there from 2010 to 2017. He was in like the first hundred employees there. And he and I, since I managed the relationship with Twitter and he was my counterpart's boss, he and I, you know, had met, he's a Sixer fan. I'm a Celtic fan. He's a huge NBA fan. And so he and I had this epic banter over the years. And so anytime we would go visit, we would see Ross. And so I had this relationship with Ross. He left Twitter in 2017. He went to Headspace, which is a meditation app. And believe it or not, he and I did a deal there where the NBA had a section in the app. And so he and I sat on opposite sides of the table for a long time and we did a couple deals together. So we had a lot of trust with one another and we had worked with each other and we'd gotten along. And so I texted him um, just to congratulate him, not to fish for a job or anything at all. So I texted him just to say, hey, congrats. And I was actually secretly hoping that he would invite me to come visit Golden. And I was hoping they would have some cool stuff that I could see, maybe see the warehouse or I don't know. So that was basically what I was hoping for. That's what I was fishing for really. And so he and I connected, we had a good call. One thing led to another and he sort of floated this thought like, hey, I'm looking for, do you know anyone, you know, who can do business development? Do you know anybody who can do content? And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. I have a network, like, sure. Like what kind of experience are you looking for? And he's like, you know, sort of like yours. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, oh, okay. So I, I noodled on it and I thought, you know, I probably have to be the one to, you know, I don't, I, maybe he wasn't trying to put me in an awkward position or whatever it was. So I, I noodled on it and I went back to him and I said, Hey, I'm interested in finding out more about the role. And that's ultimately, you know, that's ultimately how I got interested in it and how I got exposed to the, to the role, but like what convinced me to go over the edge there? I think it was the fact that I'm just a huge and still am a huge believer in what's happening in the hobby. And I was so, so, so juiced up at the time, even when I saw the TCG investment about institutional money coming into this hobby, I was like, oh my God, there's so much money being spent. And a lot of these companies are sort of relics, like in all facets of the business. Like, I'm like, wow, like when, when like institutional money comes in and there's like real capital investment, like this is going to be unbelievable. Like the future of this thing is going to be absolutely just incredible. And so I was, I was really, really excited about it. And, you know, I knew like Golden was a great brand and TCG has a lot of terrific investments. And I talked to Ken, had an epic conversation with Ken. I talked to Nat Turner. I talked to Jesse Jacobs, who's one of the co-founders of TCG and just everything that everybody told me and sort of getting to know those folks it like all of that together plus my excitement about the hobby is ultimately what what pushed me to you know to tender that resignation oh, well. all right that's a that's that's it's interesting man and uh you know was was ken himself a part of the recruiting for you did he did he try to sell you it all on, on coming over or was that more 
with uh, with your old contact from Twitter? I I spoke to Ken before I accepted the role. I mean, Ken, <laughs> it was a fun it was a funny conversation. You know, he uh, it was the first time I obviously I had ever talked to him directly, and he's just so much and as as you know, he has so much energy and he's so much passion for this space, and he was just giving me like his two cents on like where the future of this thing is and and like how it's you know basically on a rocket ship and he's basically his his sentiment in that call was like what are you waiting for man let's go this is a no-brainer <laughs> so um yeah i had i had a good conversation with ken okay right on right on wanted to say good evening to uh my guy skeppy what's up what's up so your contacts i mean you obviously developed a, a great network working at the nba for over 10 years are those is that network now of benefit to you and, and and golden just by virtue of you being there? Yeah, definitely. You know, we're in sports, which you know I have a, I have a tremendous network, and so I I think you know sports is you know sports is a very like insular community, um, and I've met people you know from all different facets of the community over the years that I've definitely called upon now, you know, when I'm thinking about different deals and, you know, there are consignment opportunities with athletes and with teams and leagues and things of that nature. So a hundred percent, but it's also, you know, relationships and venture relationships and technology. There's all kinds of different relationships that, you know, that I've forged over the years at the NBA that definitely are, are incredibly helpful today. Makes sense to me. Makes sense. So, okay, let's move on now and talk about uh, you get you start working at Golden earlier this year and pretty quickly the company is acquired by Collectors Holdings. How how fast was that? What was the timing? You start on on, you started day one. What day did that uh, did that happen? I might I might get the the math or the approximately wrong but it but i think so i started in early april and i think the announcement happened in july that's okay. that's what i i remember so it was a few a few months in about three months in um so yeah it was it was relatively quick it was you know three three months into the job that's pretty that's pretty quick a, a big change and speaking of change how have things changed at golden since then uh, I mean, things haven't necessarily changed as a result of as a result of that. So, you know, every the companies all within collectors holdings are are independently run or still going to be independently run. So I wouldn't say anything has changed at Golden as a result of that. Things have changed at Golden a lot in the five months that I've been there because, you know, we raised you know sort of in, in February at the beginning of that uh, before I got there and. We've been deploying some of that capital, bringing in, you know, a, a new executive team. So we, I have a lot of new teammates that have joined, and some of them, and many of them, are in functions that we've never really had before. And so, you know, what's what's amazing about Ken is that he built this business and he grew this business, and he had such an incredible business, and he was basically like the sole marketer <laughs> at the company. There wasn't. Like there's not, you know, not a huge marketing budget. There wasn't like a head of marketing. Like there, there wasn't, it was literally just Ken, his relationships and Ken's ability to market the company. And now we have a head of growth, which is amazing. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's a huge, it's been a huge change for us in a good way. 
um, we're building out a tech team. And, you know, we can talk about that in, in a bit if you want, but, you know, we're building out an amazing tech team. We've hired people from technology companies from all over the country. We've brought in people from Uber. We've brought in people from Google, from Twitter, from Amazon, from Microsoft. And so, you know, we've made a bunch of investments in that area as well, you know, which will bear fruit, um, you know, in the near future when our new platform launches. But so I'd say that there's been a lot of change, but I wouldn't say it's because of the acquisition. It's been because of, you know, a lot of the momentum that's happening at Golden. You go through uh, an acquisition like that, an integration, there's always going to be some synergies that, that come out of that, that, uh, that the acquirer is looking for. And, you know, there's obviously other companies that, uh, that collectors owns, including PSA. Can you speak to both synergies that are there, but also how, how the, the executives are managing any perceived conflict of interest uh, in terms of there being common ownership of both PSA and Golden Auctions? Sure. So I can take the second one first, and then I'll address the first one. But, you know, Nat is, is very much, you know, clear on the fact that th there can be no conflicts of interest and that these companies will be run independently. And, you know, now this, uh, this arrangement has been in place for a couple of months and he's true to his word on that. We have relationships with all the grading companies. So we have relationships with Beckett, we have which we just renewed. We have a relationship with Beckett, we have a relationship with SEC, we have a relationship with PSA. Just as PSA has relationships with some of our competitors, if you get a, a box from PSA, it oftentimes has advertising on it. And that is not golden advertising. It's sometimes it's our competitors. It's I, you know, I just got a box back from them a few weeks ago. It was like green and StockX all over it. So there's both companies are, are independently run. And, you know, if more M&A does happen, you know, in the future, I, that same principle will apply. And, and that's something that's really important. That's something that's been preached from the top of the company all the way down from day one. I would say like some of the synergies that exist, you know, there's a lot of like business operation synergies. So for example, when you're thinking about like supply chain and things like that, you know, we, we have a warehouse and, you know, we have a great problem where our supply and demand and everything has, has basically exceeded, you know, our capacity in some, in some ways, uh, from an operations management perspective. And, you know, I oversee, for example, the photos department and the editorial department. And so I actually, you know, tapped into the brain power of PSA and I asked them, how do you take pictures of cards? What, you know, they showed me, they built all these amazing contraptions and, you know, they offered to, to help us, like to help us create these things. So, you know, it's really like learning from them and, and helping sort of scale operation solutions. Um, there's a lot of synergy with respect to technology. So with like with the tech stack and not having, you know, multiple companies like reinvent the wheel from a technology perspective. So those are the type, it's, it's a lot of like, frankly, somewhat boring to the to the average person like back end synergy that exists but i would it's, it's those types of things um that exist okay so let's get to the question i think a lot of people are interested in knowing and it's a great segue talking about technology and, and the tech stack and all these things is the actual technology that is customer facing being the auction software ken has been on on this show a couple of times and the first time he said 
that the new auction software should be ready by Q1 of 2021. That didn't happen. Had him, I think I had him back on the last time was early April. And, and again, said, and you know, he's very forthright in, 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 in admitting that missed the deadline. And of course, there's lots of things going on. I think, I think most of the hobby can understand that. But then he said again, we're, I think he said, we're looking at the beginning of Q3. And I said, and I said, Ken, okay, so by the end of Q4, <laughs> just to, like, let, let's under promise and over deliver here. But now that we have you here, and, uh, and obviously there's, you know, there, there are some synergies, there is more access to, to certain skills and resources. Where are things at, like definitively, with with the the conversion over from the this the old auction software to what will eventually be the new auction software? So, if I learned anything from what you just told me, I should say by 2025 we will be. A, no, I'm just kidding. Things are actually. Thing I've seen. I've seen the new platform, and it's very close. It it should should be available in November. And so the current plan is that in early November, uh, we'll have a, a small auction on the new platform just to make sure that we work out some of the, you know, whatever, hopefully not many, but whatever initial kinks exist, there's inevitably going to be small bugs and things like that. And then the plan is for us to have a more significant, like large sort of business as usual type auction by mid-November. So November. So somewhere between his estimate and your estimate <laughs> is, is where where the truth likely will lie. But, but yes, it is, it's imminent. It can't come soon enough. We're very excited about it. So is there anything you can tell us about it as far as the, the, the user experience goes? Because, you know, current auction software pretty much across the board in, in our hobby is horrible, just to put it bluntly. It, it, it's a, it's just never a great experience. Um, what can you tell us about about the new the new golden platform in terms of like how slick is this going to be? Anything, any updates to the auction, um, uh, uh, the way the way it's organized and, and just the way it all it rolls out, um, and any anything that is sort any sneak peeks. Sure, I mean, look first. the The most important thing for us is stability for this new platform. I mean, I'm not going to dance around it. I mean, I know Ken has had to answer these questions in Ross for a while, you know, but we have had some issues with stability in the current, the current product. And so for us, the most important thing that is built into this product is stability. So people can expect that it was, it's going to be a heck of a lot more stable. It's going to be able to withstand the types of demand that we get during these auctions. So we're very excited about that piece. It will be able to have multiple auctions seamlessly simultaneously, which is something that we are actively discussing um, to address some of what you said in your second question is, you know, are there any changes to the auction format and things like that? Uh, I do think, you know, a world of multiple auctions um, will be there. This probably won't be a day one thing, but will be like among the very first things um, available shortly after will be things like buy it now and non-auction purchase opportunities. So there'll be that. The whole interface looks, it's night and day from what you see today. So it's, look, it's, it's clean. That's my best descriptor for it. It's really clean. Um, it's going to be responsive. It's going to be slick. Like mobile is going to look a heck of a lot better than, you know, our mobile web looks today. So 
at the end of the day, it, I think it will just do its job a heck of a lot better. And then we'll be able to iterate and build various features on top of it. It'll become, you know, content rich and all that good stuff. But the biggest things it's going to do day one is it's going to function a heck of a lot better than it does today. It's going to look better. It's going to be more intuitive. Um, and it will have, I think, some features that people will appreciate. It will have better search. It'll have um, structured data. So people will be able to, you know, easily sort things uh, by certain terms. Things will be tagged appropriately. Like it's just going to be a lot easier to navigate, to watch things, to sort by, you know, number of watchers or activity or sort of number of views or like there's a lot, there's going to be a lot more ways that people are going to be able to search and discover things. Um, so that's, that's my preview of what you're going to get with this new platform. So, you know, you know, what's going to happen is as soon as you, as soon as it releases for that first auction, that first sort of test auction, you're, you, you are, you as golden auctions is going to receive a slew of, uh, comments from users that will be, it'll, they'll really be constructive criticism, but they'll be, (laughs) they'll be disguised as criticism. And and something that I, I really think is just the way things work nowadays is that, you know, you need to, you need to get this thing out there so that you can hear those comments and you can find out, you know, what your priorities should be as far as what's what's phase two, because phase one is going to be easy, bare bones. I, I mean, I would think it's going to be let's get it out there. Let's test the stability of this thing. But let's then be open to what the what the hobby wants in terms of tweaks here and tweaks there to make it even better. And I guess, you know, do, do you guys have this thing wireframed all the way out or is the approach going to be, let's get it out there and then see what we do next? We, I mean, we have a, a pretty extensive backlog of things that won't be available at launch that will be available, you know, shortly thereafter. And we have prioritized some of those things, but I do, to your point, we've, A, we've talked to a bunch of consigners we've talked to you know buyers we've talked to folks around the hobby we've talked to people with technology so we've been getting input from people um as we've gone and i think there are things that we know will end up you know that are table stakes that we're going to launch with and we know there are things that are going to come shortly thereafter that i think won't be you know subject to opinion or controversial whatever it is they're just things that we know are important to the business and we know people will want but to your point that's that's why you know if you talk to Ross, if you had him in this seat or Ken in this seat, I think that's that's why we're so eager to get this out into the world because Emily, look, we have we have thick skin. We can take whatever people say, um, but the important thing is is really understanding what people want and then prioritizing the things that people want. So I think to your point, it's going to be a mix of things that we know are going to be prioritized in our backlog. But then the agility and the flexibility to hear from people, get feedback, see what's working and make those adjustments on the fly. Yeah, I think that's exactly uh, that's that's the approach right there. I'm going to go to a couple of comments. Lapper just put a couple of really good ones out there and then we'll go to Skeppy's question. But he says, sounds like an agile approach. Put out the minimum and let the user dictate what is needed. Goes on to say everyone thinks they can build the perfect platform until you realize the consumer or user doesn't care about those things, but cares about other things. And that's why for you guys to be agile as far as phase two goes and maybe prioritize those that backlog in accordance with what the, the hobby wants uh, might be might serve you guys very well, um, which I think is what was, is exactly what you were saying. 
Let's go on to this question here. Uh, Skeppy asks, do you view the auction house competition as healthy? And how does that influence you personally to improve and pivot? I love it. I think it's great. Honestly, I, I think it's great. I think what competition is essential to move this entire thing forward. I think it makes us all move faster. It makes us all think differently. It's also spurring a lot of the investment that's coming into this space. I think it's incredible. It's like an incredible motivator. I mean, if you just had like one like behemoth that owned the entire, you know, auction space in this case, I, I think I really do think it would it would hamper creativity and it would hamper progress. So I do think it's healthy. Um, I mean, look, yeah, there's times when it's like petty and crazy and things like that. I think that comes with any industry, but it definitely you know, influences me. I'm always looking at what our competition does. So I'm not going to pretend like I don't. So if any of you, and I have a very broad definition of who our competitors are and, you know, my old job, you know, Adam Silver said something that stuck with me today and, you know, you can apply it to this in a slightly different way. But what Adam said was whenever, you know, I would, if you would present data to Adam and you showed NFL, MLB, MLS, other NHL, he would say, we're not competing with other sports leagues. We're competing with anything that anybody can spend their time and money on. So if you have $150 and a Friday night, you might be able to go and buy two tickets to a game and go see a game, or you might go out to dinner, or you might go watch a movie, or you might do something else. So his point was like, we're just competing with entertainment. We're competing with share of like attention, share of wallet. Like that's what we're competing competing for. And we're competing with anybody that could take that away. Now he said that, I don't know, let's call it eight years ago, seven years ago. And that predated, I mean, Netflix existed mostly as a DVD rental place with like the beginning of its streaming. Now, of course, no truer statement has ever been made. He was definitely even a little ahead of his time back then when you're thinking about it from his perspective, from our perspective, it's the same thing. I have a broad I have a really broad definition of who our competition is. And I look at everybody in the space all the time. And I'm jealous. Anytime someone does something that I think is cool, I'm jealous and it makes me want to go out and do something cool. So I, I have my eyes out for everything. It definitely, I think it makes all of us better though. Honestly, I think that's, that's what part of why I'm so bullish on this, on this industry as a whole. So I want I want to take that and just flip it a bit to to another area within the hobby being the sports cards themselves because you you love the competition that's what you you you're very passionate about that and I love that. What are your thoughts then just hobby a general hobby discussion now in in, in terms of the single license era that we're in and we've been in for 15 or so years now. Um how do you feel about that? Like as someone who kind of came from the NBA, you know, you collected as a kid but you know, you kind of came back into the hobby in, in the late 20 teens and you came into the single license era. You love competition. And I, I and I say love because you you exuded that just now in, in, in your as you were speaking. Uh, that was very passionate. How do you feel about the single license era that we're in today? And and do you think it's it's good? And, and it seems like we're going to continue with that into the foreseeable future. We're consolidated in, in the future based on what we're hearing about fanatics. Right. I mean, look, I think, I think it cuts, I honestly think it cuts both ways. I, I do think that it, it affects, 
I think it does affect, you know, creativity and affects progress in some, with some, in some respects. I mean, you know, these two companies that exist today, like are monopolies of each sport, you know, each sports or each IP holders, sports cards. And that's, you know, and, and that kind of stinks. And sometimes, you know, I think we could all probably pick instances where, you know, things haven't moved quite where, where they should or mistakes have been made or, you know, it, it might be nice to have an alternative in there. You know, like there are times I've definitely thought that. On the other hand, I definitely know, you know, why it happened. And when you came out of the junk era, I mean, there was a period where there was the opposite problem, where you had so many licensees and the leagues at that point just wanted the money. So they just, whoever had a check, they would just take the check and say, sure, you can make cards too. And it just created this insanity where everybody was overproducing, but there was also way too many cooks in the kit, way too many, you know, companies out there that were making cards of, you know, every different sports IP. So I, I, I look, there's no, like there's in this, in that particular space, there's no perfect answer for it. It is, you know, I think, look, Fanatics is an amazing company. They're incredibly deep pocketed. Like, I'm sure they have just an insane plan for what's going to happen. I have no idea what that plan is, but it is, it is a little bit of a bummer. You know, it is a little bit of a bummer that, you know, there aren't more players out there. And, you know, I, I do think at least having like Tops and Panini there, even if they're not in the same, you know, they, they're not like rights holders to the exact same sport you know, look, the other one does make, you know, in the case of like baseball, like Panini does make unlicensed product and they're, you know, and even so I think as companies, they compete with each other, you know, like they're definitely competing with each other and you'll see like, you know, different types of like certain issues that, you know, each will put out and certain new products and you'll see them responding to each other. So there is a little bit of competitive dynamic between those companies today. Um, but yeah. Do you have any insight based on your your years at the NBA into and I've heard I've heard over the over the past while I've heard many different theories as to why we are in a single licensing era and the one that that I think makes the most sense is that the and I you know it's kind of a combination of things but is that number 1 it's easier for the leagues to to manage the administration of dealing with one licensee is easier there's fewer photos to to vet fewer sets to, 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 to approve. Um, and, and I, I think that that's, that kind of makes sense to me that, 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 that is a reason why we'd be in a single license it's purely out of convenience. It's, but, but then I thought to myself, well, you know, now the, I said this a year ago, the hobby's blown up. If there was ever a time for these, for there to be, to be competition in the hobby, now's the time because the leagues must be noticing what's going on. And, why not expand their revenue? It, it only makes business sense. Now, I didn't think it would go to one monster coming in and taking everything for 10x the prior deal, but that was another plausible situation that seems to have happened. But back to my question, do you have any insight? And, and is that correct? Or do you, do you know why, as far as the NBA at least goes, why we're in a, they would only want one licensee for sports cards since Panini came in and took it from, uh, from Upper Deck? Look, I... I don't have insight into whether it's what the or the genesis of this you know single license deal with Panini was. I would be very surprised, however, if they were motivated primarily by convenience. That would not be the NBA that I worked at. Um, 
at the end of the day, if the business, if it made sense, if it made business sense for there to be more than one, then they would staff accordingly. So I, it honestly, it, it comes down to the fact, usually you get favorable terms. Exclusivity comes with a hefty, hefty premium really does. It comes with a very hefty premium and usually, you know, and look, fanatics is, is showing you that again, like it comes with a hefty premium and that's, it was probably a result of business terms. I mean, at the end of the day, like look, ESPN and, you know, so Disney as a whole and Warner media are, you know, they share their co-exclusive, but there's a reason why like, you know, live, um, linear network games are not just everywhere right like you can make the same argument they could license why aren't they licensing also to cbs why aren't they licensing to nbc anymore why aren't they licensing to whatever like you could make the same argument there that it that like it, the business terms often dictate what they do so you know and at the end of the day i think look they are measured they are weighing different things but I would say convenience or probably in my guess would be near the bottom of the list. Now, maybe look, maybe when the deal happened, you know, and this wasn't that huge of a of a revenue generator for the league, maybe it factored in because they were like, well, how many people do we need running this business? That's not, that's like a rounding error in the revenues of the league as a whole. Okay. It's easier for us to only have the one, but again, I, I would be surprised personally, if that were the primary motive for there being only one licensee. I never, I never thought that made much sense. You, you nailed it when you said, if there's more business there, we will staff up. They would have staffed up of, of, of course. And that was my argument a year ago was if there's more business there, they'll hire a paralegal, they'll hire another, another, another lawyer internally, whatever it takes to do it, you're not going to leave money on the table at the cost of a salary, especially if it's if it's big. But what my biggest takeaway to your comments there were, and I don't think it's not it's not like a surprise or new information. But when you said that exclusivity comes at a hefty premium, because where my mind goes when I think of a hefty premium is that, well, now that hefty premium needs to either be saved somewhere or revenues have to grow. And I think the hobby at large, we'll, we'll argue, okay, so that's why we have what, what a lot of people consider to be overprinting. And that's why we maybe don't have as much design innovation, because maybe we're not paying the designers as much. And, and, and those sorts of those sorts of things. And, and I'm not saying that's the case, because I don't work behind those closed doors. Uh, but a lot of people do think that's the case. And I just wonder if, if the exclusivity and the hefty premium based on the exclusivity, it's is what has kind of caused there to be so many uh, hobbyists that are just kind of tired of, the, of what they consider to be the same old thing. Now, for me, I've seen I've seen innovation every year out of card companies. I think a lot of people just may, you know, they, they, they notice that the base sets don't look very different year to year, like Prism, for example, or whatever it may be. But um, any, any thoughts on that? Look, I think there's an element of truth to it. I mean, I've I've also seen you know, innovation come out of out of card sets and these card companies have certainly innovated and you see, a, you know, a bunch of new different products and you see, you know, some of them have gone, you know, both of them have tried, you know, their hand at NFTs. Um, and look, when you talk about just the physical cards, I, I do think you've seen some innovation there, but it's, it's just ne the nature of the beast. And I can bring you right back to sports media. 
have has watching a sports game as a game experience on linear television changed that much in the last however many years 10 years 20 years has it i mean i really don't think it has like i you know and and that's uh, we used to have these conversations all the time and when i was you know when i left a guy you know this again like sports media is the thing i know the most about in the world and these are the debates we would have and we would talk about you know what are the pros and cons of adding in additional licensees and things like that because yes it can it can lead to innovation and you know when you just have these rights and you have them in 10-year deals in the case of sports you know sports rights it, it often leads to a, a little bit of stagnation i'll say that like disney's trying disney's definitely doing some stuff warner media is trying like i'm not trying to condemn either company because they're they're both trying and they're definitely trying to but at the end of the day like like the fundamental experience hasn't changed all that much now maybe it should maybe it shouldn't i do think you know if there were like you know if you went to the opposite extreme you know, it probably wouldn't be, it would probably be kind of a cruddy user experience in some ways. You wouldn't know where to find games on a given night and it might not fetch the highest nut for the biggest nut from a revenue perspective for the league. But I would argue, I bet you anything that innovation would happen at a much faster rate because everybody would be competing with each other. They would all be one-upping each other. I think that same idea can be applied into this. So I, I, I don't think you're wrong. No. Yeah, well, appreciate the comments. Uh, Tony Sin wants to let you know that, wow, that is a sexy shirt Santa's <laughs> rocking. Where can we buy that same shirt? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks for the comment. We can leave it at that, Sam. You don't need to reply. I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm flattered that you like the shirt. Yeah. It's a Bonobo <laughs> shirt, I think. It's, it's um, I think that's what it is. But I don't remember, to be honest with you. I don't buy clothes that often. <laughs> all right you know i don't buy clothes very often either i, I go to the the national and i'm and i'm set after the national with all the, <laughs> all the shirts that you get stuff. there yeah that's right that's where i do my my annual uh t-shirt shopping let's talk about ken golden for a second you know we see ken on his he's been on this show he's on other shows he does his instagram live now that he's really kind of committed to a thursday night schedule uh and so we as the audience the audience the hobby we see him that way you work with him now. Is he the same guy at the office on a daily basis as he is when he's uh, out in public? There's only one. There's one Ken. Ken comes in in one flavor and one speed, and it's like very intense. So yes, he's he's the same in the office. He's the same when you talk to him on the phone. He's the same, you know. He's the same on Instagram Live. He's the same everywhere. Um, so yeah, there's 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 just there's just one Ken. Look, he's he's definitely a pioneer of this industry. In a lot of ways, he's you know he's the face of the industry. He's a prominent face in this industry, and he's he cares very very deeply about the success of the company. I mean, his name's on the door. I mean, you know, I I can't relate to that, right? I mean, if there's a company where literally the, the your name is like on the door of the company, I mean, I, to me like the it, I think it would hit me the same way that, you know, just to, to like the, the pride in that. And also the, just like sort of obsession with making sure that everything being done is for the betterment of the company and moving the company forward. So, you know, he's, he's involved in, in all facets of the company. He's a very, he's definitely a very intense guy. 
And so tell us a little bit about the show that's going to be starting to film in November, I think you mentioned. And before you do, so I was uh, fortunate to actually where you and I met Sam in person was at the National in August uh, after the at the what has become the I, I forget the golden one of one dinner. I think it, it, it was labeled. Yeah. Is that right? And yes. and um, I ended up on the guest list. Very grateful for that. And uh, and at the end of the at the end of the night, I, I approached you and, you know, introduced myself and talked about, you know, having you on the show and this and that. Uh, but it was at that dinner where Ken kind of after we had all eaten, he he did give a bit of a speech and he announced to the room that what the title of the show was going to be, when it was going to start filming and uh, who the, uh, the, the the executive producer was and when it would actually start to air. Why don't you just instead of meeting, why don't you take us through those little those details? And then I want to talk a bit about about the excitement around it. Sure. I can give you every detail. I'm not supposed to disclose the platform on which it will air yet. There will have there has to be an announcement for that. But um, the show, it's called The Golden Touch. And it essentially, you know, is, you know, look at not just like Ken's life and the life of the business, but it really each episode gets into the sort of the quest for uh, a rare, you know, piece of memorabilia or a rare card or you know, that item sort of showing up, you know, at our, you know, at our office and our warehouse or, you know, being sort of, you know, um, presented to, to Ken or presented to one of our consignment folks. It's being created by a company called Wheelhouse, um, which are famous for creating Pawn Stars. Um, so you can kind of imagine the style and, you know, those folks, you know, created that show and put it on the map and made it into, you know, the amazing success that it is. So they, de they're definitely the right group to do something like this. And they've done a whole bunch of other stuff and sold shows to all kinds of different networks. It's being directed by Connor Shell, who I knew from my previous life, who was the head of content at ESPN. So, you know, and he, he left ESPN, you know, a few months ago and he started his own thing that TCG invests in, but, um, he's, you know, incredible. He created 30 for 30. I mean, he's just, you know, a pioneer in sports media. And so, you know, he'll be involved. Um, Peyton Manning is one of the executive producers and, and uh, Omaha production. So it's got basically as, as great a, you know, a list of folks as you can have involved in this thing. And I'm really excited about it from, you know, the perspective of the company. Obviously, it's great for our company. Terrific for us and gets our name out there and gets Ken out there and gets some of our employees out there. But I also think it's good for the hobby um, because, look, if you've got folks that, you know, are just trying to find something to binge on, you know, a potential platform they you know and and they discover it you know it very well may get somebody back into the hobby that you know had forgotten about it or you know just were sort of a little curious and it may like reignite that in them so i just think it'll be great to get more exposure for the hobby so very excited i films um i believe it starts filming sometime around november december and then um, the air date is TBD, but it'll be 2022. Awesome. And is are you expecting there to be like a, is, you know, in Pawn Stars, they, they go into the gold and silver pawn shop and they do their filming right there. That is the set. Is the set going to be the current 
golden auctions uh, facility? Yes, it will. So it'll it'll take place in a few different places. But yes, uh, there will be. They actually just uh, did a site visit a week or two ago. So um, yes, it'll be there. Um, it'll be there will be some at Ken's house, and there will be some you know sort of on the road as the consignment directors and Ken go on you know their various adventures, discovering things, picking things up, things like that. One of the things that, you know, Ken has has consistently been saying uh, publicly is that, you know, his goal with all of his media appearances is to really grow the pie. And I think you just you just sort of corroborated that when you when you said, you know, I think it's going to be good for the hobby overall. Um, and and I think I think that's inevitable to happen because you're going to, you know, with the when, when Pawn Stars came out and American Pickers and uh uh, storage wars and all these things. So many people got into looking for cool old signs and uh, all sorts of different antiques. You know, if this show catches on mainstream the way that did, and how will it not? It's everybody loves sports. Well, most people love sports. So how is it not going to catch on, especially if the director and the production team, uh, you know, hits a home run with this, throws a touchdown, a slam dunk. Oh, we can... <laughs> Shoots, scores a goal, whatever you want to say. Um, I, I think it's exciting. I, I'm, I, I can't wait to see it. it. So he also announced the executive producer. Uh, I don't want to say it in case I can't, but to what, what, what? Uh, who's the big executive producer on the on the on the program? Or can you say that? I think it's so public. Peyton Manning is is yeah. is involved in it as well, um, which again we're very excited about. Yeah, between Peyton and between Connor. And between, you know, wheelhouse with, with Brent, like it's, it's just a, an A plus list of folks involved in the show. So we're, so what's, what's we're Peyton signed. Manning's involvement? Is it just an investment or is he actually going to have an active role on the show itself? Do you know? I don't, I don't know if he'll appear in any episodes. I, I do know that he's, you know, he's a fan of the hobby. He, you know, he has a crazy collection of, his own stuff that, that he's amassed over the years as one would imagine given you know how ridiculous his career was but i i can't i have no idea i'm not not even being coy um if i wanted to be but i don't i don't know if he will appear on an, on an episode or not no fair fair enough fair enough uh troy wants to know at the end of the show do you have a tribal council to vote out a member <laughs> that'd be pretty epic that'd be pretty funny <laughs> no and yes that'd be pretty epic collection sml wants so is it going to be on youtube only or on tv as well uh it will be on a platform of some kind which i cannot announce at the moment unfortunately um it will be accessible it'll be on a commonly used distribution platform so and to collection i have no clue and and uh sam's being a little cryptic as he has to because i can't announce it but i do not believe it's meant to be a youtube i could be way off on this so but i don't think it's meant to be a, a youtube to be its primary distribution uh no it's not a web it's not a web show no no okay buzz daniel busby said if peyton is involved it's espn so that's a that's a potential possibility out there for sure um okay uh, you know, here's a question now. You're you're you come with some great experience. You're now at Golden Auctions, a prominent company in the hobby. You know, what are some of the goals, your goals coming in here? You've now been you've been for six months or so already. I know when you start a new job, you always want to make sure that you 
keep that job and that you have, you know, and you need goals, right? And any, any well-run organization has its employees set goals and performance reviews, all these sorts of things. What are some goals that you are setting for yourself in the context of being uh, in your role at Golden Auctions? I would say, so uh, at Golden, I have two primary, you know, functions, two different departments. I have business development um, partnerships, you know, sort of that bucket, and then I have content. And so they both have their own goals. I'd say overall as a company, the goals are really simple. It's grow supply, grow demand, grow the brand. Three really simple goals for the company. Those three goals are also the three goals of each of those subgroups. I think on the content side, to be more specific, I really, I want us to figure out our voice, which we're in the process of doing. I think very much from a content perspective, I think inside out. So building the right infrastructure, editors, the right talent, the right folks, the right graphic designers, the right templates, the right formats, the right playbook that we can then execute and iterate on. So you can think inside out, you can think in terms of, you know, a house analogy and building the foundation and then building on top of it. So for me, it's, you know, figuring out and we're, you know, in the five months I've been there, we've made a ton of strides in that area, but it's really, you know, sort of building out that infrastructure, figuring out what, what content works for us, figuring out what our voice is, what our role is, and really setting ourselves up so that in 2022 we can go crazy and we can really build off build off of that. On the the partnership side, I think for like it's it's multifaceted, but I, I really want to forge some foundational partnerships, but also experiment with partners in different categories. So we had a deal with Barstool um, that we signed that um, in which we do live breaks with you know, Big Cat and PFT Commenter and Ken and addition and extra guests. We had Blake Griffin on the last one. And so, you know, in, from the media company perspective, you know, that's would be a foundational partnership. That's also something we're sort of experimenting with. You know, we're talking to various entities within sports. So I want to make sure that we're establishing, you know, foundational partnerships that have various components to them. So that have a, you know, a supply component that help us drive demand and that are good for the brand, right? That ladder up to those three primary goals. And then I want to, I want to try stuff. Like we have an auction right now with the Patriots um, where we have 30 uh, game worn and team issued jerseys from 1971 until, you know, the 20 teens. And so I want to try different things. We're talking about a couple of other things with other other teams um, that'll come out pretty soon. So I want to try some stuff. I want to work with influencers. I want to work with companies in, in other verticals. So there's a whole bunch of things that that I want to do there. But there I really want to, again, I want to establish, you know, foundational partnerships. And I want to, again, like build that foundation, build that infrastructure. So and build sort of the blueprint that we can then execute on in 2022. So a lot of 21 is setting the stage for, for 22. So you mentioned a couple of things there. You mentioned verticals, you mentioned voice, you mentioned voice for the second time. And I'm curious, what, what do you mean by that? When, when you say we're trying to find our voice, can you, and you said you're on your way there, it's, it's, or, or it's in progress. Can you kind of just elaborate on that a little bit, what, what that means and maybe what you see it being uh, ultimately? 
Yeah, I think I think it's what it's a couple of things. You can take that that term voice quite literally and you, and view it as what is our tone? What is the tone of our content? That's not what I mean. <laughs> Although that is a consideration in content. But what I mean is what what like what role should we have in the hobby? what content makes sense to come from golden what role should we have i think that's probably a better way of saying it than than finding our voice i guess which you know so if i i'd, I'd rephrase it i'd rephrase my own phrase as finding our place in the hobby from a content perspective no brainer we have ken that's a huge piece of what we're doing that's established that's not something that's being considered or anything like that <laughs> We have, and, and Ken comes with the, with experience. Ken, Ken comes with insight on what's going on in the hobby. Ken comes with, you know, the, he's like the mouthpiece of the company in a lot of ways. So that, that has, you know, Ken's is his own entity there and is part of it. No brainer. We're going to have a lot of content about the amazing stuff that we're selling. We have, you know, access to just incredible, like millions and millions and millions of dollars of amazing stuff. So like that's that stuff's pretty easy promoting what we're selling and even just telling the story of what we're selling is something that's going to be important to us but beyond that what what is our role should we be educating people should we get into you know the education of collecting and the hobby in general does that make sense like at what like you know just general hobby conversation debate that kind of thing should we be amplifying you know viral moments and things that are happening throughout the hobby you know, should we be commenting on what things, you know, people should be investing in or not? You know, I would say for that one, probably not. But that that's what I mean by find our voice is really understand, like, what the mosaic of our content should look like and what role we occupy within back to the beginning of the conversation when I talked about NBA Twitter, what role should we occupy in the broader hobby conversation and the broader hobby ecosystem from a content perspective in particular? And that's what we're figuring out um, using data, talking to people, using our own expertise. Yeah, great, great, great response. I appreciate it. You know, you're not alone in that decision. I mean, um, I'm working with Collectible, the fractional ownership company, and I'm I'm doing content for them on, on a contract basis. And I had, you know, I just bring this up because I had their CEO, Ezra Levine, on the show uh, a year ago. And one of the comments he made when I asked him about the future of the company was he said, you know, we want to be a content hub to it. And I forget his exact words, but he said that. And then they followed through, you know, they're building out their content. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll set the stage with that and I'll ask you, and it's sort of a loaded question. I feel like I, I have an answer myself, but how important then is it for these brands and these companies to build out their content it, and and how, how important like you're obviously putting a lot of thought into it but is it important for golden to to also or just for golden to be a content hub as well or can you simply run your business you know have ken do what he does it, it, it's it's who he is it comes natural to him or do you need to have a bigger content position within the overall hobby it, I think it varies for every company. I think every company has their own decision to make on it. We we feel one way about it. We feel the answer is yes for for Golden, given Golden's situation, given our aspirations. 
we feel the answer is yes to that question that we should have, uh, you know, a, a rich content experience. However, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily, you know, the case for everybody. Look, I do think content's important. I think even if all you're going to do is promote whatever your business is, I think doing that in a way that is engaging in a way that aligns with best practices on whatever medium you're using, whether it's web, whether it's app, whether it's social media, whatever it might be, I, you like, it's gotta be interesting or else what's the point of doing it? If nobody's going to look at it, engage with it, enjoy it at all. And we're in something that everybody is passionate about. I mean, people are buying things. This is, you know, this whole sector is part of, you know, this trend of like passion investing that's going on. And also, you know, people are collectors and they collect, this is, a, it's called the hobby. A hobby is something you do in your spare time with, that you're passionate about, that you love to do. Like no one's like forcing you to do it. This is like how people are spending their, look at people are spending their Saturday night, like listening to me babble about this because people love it. So I just think it's kind of, I think, I think it's sort of a waste to not at least, you know, cash in on that in some way and, and, and play a role in that, you know, in that conversation. But I think every company is different. And I also do think you need to have a very clear idea of why you're doing what you're doing and what your company goals are. And you do have to ask yourself the question, am I doing this to further one of these goals? Is it helping me further one of these goals or the achievement of one of these goals? Or is it not? Is it, am I just doing this to do it? Or am I just getting like a bunch of, you know, likes or a bunch of views or a bunch of whatever, and it's not really doing anything for the business. Like there are things like that. And those are, again, that's, and that's part of finding your way in this space. For sure. I, I think, I really think it comes back to growing the pie overall. I, I you know, that's why collectibles doing it. That's why, uh, that's why golden wants to do it. That that's, that's why everybody should be doing it is and producing good, good quality content. And plus the you know, not just the hobby, which, which coming back to that comment you made this, our hobby has now we, we have taken that word, the hobby, and made it ours. No, no other hobby can be called the hobby, right? Just sports card memorabilia collecting. We own that term now. We it's, play, a proper, it's a proper noun. Right. <laughs> capital we, C, capital H. <laughs> we, exactly. We have laid claim to that. Everyone else can go find their own terminology. We own the hobby. But the hobby does exist now, really, on social media and, and on and, and on online as far as content goes like instagram is a huge hub for the hobby facebook groups a huge hub for the hobby twitter not one i'm as involved in but a huge hub for the hobby as are auction platforms right 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 all the way to ebay right like that's where a lot of the hobby exists so we're all on we're, we're it makes sense to have a a presence obviously um on these hobby on on these uh, social media platforms I want to bring up a comment here. Uh, this is already from about 12 minutes ago, but Jordan says, uh, Sam, you have been one of my favorite sports cards live guests of all time. Very impressive. Troy goes on to agree. Very insightful. I just wanted to bring those up because uh, very nice comments, guys. Thank you for, for uh, thank you for posting those up and to share those with Sam. Yeah, he's an articulate, uh, definitely a, a logical thinker and, and one, one sharp dude, no doubt. Adventures Troy says, uh, we true that we love the hobby, no doubt. Duncan Chino, good evening to you. 
And DR says, I saw a sealed box of Beanie Baby cards at my regional farmer's market last week. Interesting. I'm That's great for the for the young, young, young kids, for sure. <laughs> well, I, still again, have, I still have a black garbage bag filled with my childhood Beanie Babies in my parents' attic in Massachusetts. In the off chance that they come back and are a thing, I just, I couldn't live with myself if I threw them out. So they're, they're so, still- Okay. If you're going to admit it, I'll admit something very, very similar. Back in the Beanie Baby, baby craze, I was, uh, I had one of my uncles was, was big into them. So, and I'm a collector. It's just, it's in my blood and my nature. And I thought, oh, these things are kind of cute. So I bought a whole bunch. I also had a black bag filled with them. But my goal, my, my vision for them was always that if and when I have children, they're going to be for them to learn about the different animals. And I, without a word of a lie now, all of these Beanie Babies, after me lugging them around for, I don't know, 15 years or so, came out of the bag. And now they sit on a shelf and my daughter, who's four and a half in her bedroom, and my son, who's two and a half, always comes to me wherever I might be in the house, grabs my finger and pulls me into her room and makes me lift him up so he can pull them off the shelf. And he, he kind of looks and like he's looking at a shelf of candy, deciding what he wants. And he picks up this one, picks this one, and then he you know, puts his body weight so I can put him down. And he runs off and plays with these Beanie Babies. So I am getting excellent value for my investment I made in Beanie Babies. Uh, whatever that was, 15, 20 years ago, 20 plus probably at this point. That's that is the ROI we're here for. That's it. That's it. And it's fun. And I'm very, I love it because that was what I set out to do. I never thought these things were going to be worth a lot of money. If they did, that would have been wonderful. But right now, all those little hang tags, they get torn off as soon as I as soon as oh, I yeah. give them to my kids. So I might have a couple that are worth a few hundred bucks. I don't care. Play with the play with the darn thing. It's okay. It's okay. We got Jay Zolnick from uh, Australia joining us. Welcome, Jay. Welcome, Jonathan Allen. Thank you for joining. So, okay, we're going to wrap this up pretty soon, Sam. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for for joining. So, verticals was the other thing that I that that caught my ear there on the last uh, the last topic. So, what you know, obviously, you guys are doing sports cards and memorabilia. You had a recent auction with some video games and comic books. What other sort of verticals do you see yourselves getting into? I think coins, coins are a huge one. That's that's one that we're really focused on. It's comics, video games you mentioned, trading card games, which we've historically sold, Pokemon, but I think it's an area that we could expand. There, we sold a crazy box of, of Yu-Gi-Oh cards, Magic the Gathering, there's, there's some newer product that, that people like, um, NFTs, I think that's you know that's a topic. I saw some comments float by about about NFTs. It's probably a, it's a very loaded topic that probably is the the would be the subject of another ninety minutes of 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 this type of a conversation. Probably um, not on probably not on this channel though. Yeah, but <laughs> but uh, but it's definitely something that has caught you know caught it's caught everybody's attention. It's something that I was involved in the uh, in the Top Shot deal when I was at the NBA and. Um, it's definitely something that we're that we're talking about. Um, it, there's entertainment, you know, Hollywood memorabilia, you know, movie and shows and music memorabilia. I mean, honestly, if anybody, if someone's collecting it, we want to sell it. We want to be the place that helps people, you know, find 
or buy and sell the things that that they want to collect, the things that they love, things that they're passionate about, things they want to invest in, whatever their reason may be, we want to be that place. And we're always going to, you know, be focused on sports, obviously, as you know, in addition to all those other things, that's not going anywhere. That's, you know, the origin of, of Ken's career. And he has a long career in sports that even predated, you know, him working officially in the hobby. But we, you know, that's part of our identity, but it definitely expansion into other verticals is a huge, a huge focus. And I think it's something you can expect from us as we move forward, you know, throughout the rest of, you know, the remaining months of 21, but as you look at our company in the next year or two, et cetera. Interesting. I want to bring up Jay's next comment here. Uh, could golden auctions possibly venture into the fine art realm, namely paintings of athletes? I mean, fine art is not uh, something we've specifically focused on. It's definitely something that's come up in conversations. I think that's, you know, there's definitely some, um, I think there are a couple, you know, particularly famous, you know, uh, artists that do paint athletes whose names I cannot produce right now. And maybe perhaps you can, Jay, but um, I mean, we've sold, we've sold like one-off paintings of athletes and pictures of athletes we've sold you know art we sold comic art in our last auction and comic art is like a whole other form of collectible which i think is pretty rad it's the original you know art that became the page in the comic book so that's pretty cool Very. Um, but we also sold you know some of the original pictures from if you remember the tops 2020 set that they came out with we sold some of the original artwork from that, um, from the artists that took part in that. So there are things like that that we've dabbled with. Maybe maybe paintings of of athletes or art around athletes is is a you know more of a sort of a logical step for us. Um, I would be surprised if like fine art was in the you know immediate term plan. Um, but hey, I'll never say never say never. Who knows what never the future holds. Yeah, Rich, Rich Frank says uh, coins will always carry value. I think that goes without saying. Uh, DR says, what about wine? Jeff Hart says sports cards are fine art. Heck yeah. And that's really been a, a narrative as of late. And I, I, I do I do agree with that. I think they're, it, it, it's, it's our generation's art. Um, okay. And then I, I just want to address this comment, birds on a bat. I appreciate that birds on a bat. But I'll let you know, if you check out the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel, there is a playlist called scl elsewhere and it's all the other shows that i've been on and i, ha I have been uh i have been a guest on some shows so uh, you can check that out if you uh so choose to um okay i want to i want to touch on two other sort of hobby um ish items if you will both of which i am working with other companies on just to put that out there and be transparent with the audience and everything but i am genuinely curious so um as everybody knows, I'm doing a show now with Collectible on Sunday nights called Collectible Live. And I want to know your opinion on the fractional ownership um, approach to the hobby now that has become, you know, a, a big deal over the past year. Uh, you know, you're a, you're a collector yourself. You've been you've been around for a while. How do you see fractional ownership fitting into the hobby um, on a go forward basis and not just fitting in, but its function in the hobby look i love it i think 
it, is it for for me is it what i want what i want to do no i'm a little old school like i like to have i don't even like to you know we have a vault now i don't even like to vault my stuff i like to have it and in the cabinet which you can sort of see right behind me that's where a lot of my cards are and i work out of this desk and in spare moments in my day i will just look through some of my slabs and things like that um, so I, I like to physically possess things and I also like to collect them, but look, I think fractional is great for a couple of reasons. One, I think it helps open up the hobby more seamlessly to people who just want to invest. And I think that's okay. I think when we talk about growing the pie, we have to open, we have to grow the pie and include people that maybe aren't necessarily wired like you and me, Jeremy, who just, you know, who do, you know, love to just own the cards and view them as fine art and enjoy possessing them and putting them on the shelf behind us in these streams and things like that. And so I do think that fractional allows people to take investment stakes in things. And it's, it's a little bit more impersonal um, and detached than, than physically owning the thing. I also do think it allows people to dabble in other areas within collecting outside of just sports cards if they don't, you know, and not, and it's sort of like, lowers the on-ramp into that area right because instead of having to go and you know learn about every comic on the planet and things like that and like which comic should i buy and then spend thousands of dollars buying my first comic you know if a company like rally or collectible or, or a fractional company has a comic they ipo it for a certain amount they disclose why it's special they inform you about it and you're like, okay, you know what? I'll buy a few shares of this. I'll see how it feels. I'll kind of watch it. Maybe it will get bought out. You know, I think it actually helps people dabble in other forms of collecting in a way that they may not have been able to otherwise or may not be willing to otherwise if they were just left to their own devices. So overall, I'm I'm really into fractional. I think it's I like as as a you know person who works in the hobby, as a fan of the hobby as a whole. And as somebody who wants it to do well, I think I think fractional has has an important role and I I'm into it. Yeah, I, I think it has a place, too, for sure, in the hobby. And like you, I like to own my cards as well. But I I don't I don't think it's one or the other. These aren't mutually you, you, you they're, they're not mutually exclusive. You, you can't you can do both. And uh, just while we're talking about, I will invite everybody to come watch Collectible Live tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's on the ticker right now. Uh, on the on the collectible YouTube channel, it's YouTube.com/slash/collectible/app, and uh, my guest tomorrow night is going to be Carvin Chung, uh, inventor of Exquisite in the Cup, uh, formerly of Upper Deck Panini, currently of GTS. If you don't know who he is yet, you you should, and you can you can learn more about him tomorrow night when uh, him and I will be uh, wrapping on the collectible channel. So the next thing I want to talk, I want to ask you about how you think fits into the hobby, and then I'm going to tie these all together are these live shopping apps. So I am working with Whatnot now. Whatnot does live is a live shopping app. There are there is Loop. I know Amazon and Walmart have have dipped their toes into it and Instagram and Facebook as well. I believe have some plans coming. How you know just as far as technology advancing, how do you see the live shopping platform growing in this in the hobby and is it something that Golden has considered? Well, look, I mean, I think live shopping isn't isn't necessarily new as a concept, right? I mean, even if you think about just in the TV world, 
you know, you had QVC and I mean, that's a lot of the origin of Ken was like, he, he would get up on QVC and sell things. Um, you know, even when you think about, you know, the history of auctions, it, you know, those are often historically, those are physical events. People were at, people were, you know, were there, there's the competition there. They were, you know, it, it was, they were dressed up. They, you know, were learning about the item that they were buying and things like that. So I think there's always been this idea like of content, the fusion of content and commerce to use, you know, a business sort of platitude. But I, I think that I'm excited about what Whatnot and Loop and, and these various companies are doing um, because I, I think it is really powerful and, and it brings like it brings like an added level of, of fun to it. You know, I think having someone interesting there who can talk about what they're selling and interact with people while they're buying it and tell them about what it is that they're buying. You can see the bidding happening in real time. You can engage with the people who you're bidding against in the case of whatnot. Like that's, I, I find that really fun. I also love the idea that you can just like buy something and like open a pack. Like if I want to just like open a pack virtually right now, I could like go on loop and open a pack. That's pretty sick. Like that's, that's a really cool, that's an awesome thing. So I, I'm very excited about where things are, are going there. I think those, those two are great. And, you know, I know that, you know, Amazon is obviously heading there as well. And that makes a ton of sense. And Instagram has been prioritizing shopping now for a couple of years. Instagram shopping is incredibly powerful. And I think they're just scraping the surface of what's possible. And yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that, that, you know, all these companies have a really exciting future in this space. As far as we're concerned, I mean, yeah, I, I think, look, I don't, I don't know if we're going to like go and create a whatnot or a loop type experience. I, I I don't think that's in like the immediate plans. Again, I'll never say never at any point in the future. Who knows what, what will happen down the road. But I do think that there is an important fusion between content and commerce for us. And, you know, we've tried some hobby clothes shows. I know you've been involved in some hobby clothes shows as well. I I do think there is something to be said for like eventizing or I'm sorry, auction clothes shows for eventizing auction clothes and making that into more of an experience for people. We've also, you know, breaking has obviously been a popular thing in the hobby for the last bunch of years. Like that's the same concept here. And we've done a bunch of that. Um, we've, you know, we've dabbled in that in the last, you know, few months since I've been here, you know, they've done some stuff even before I got here. And that's definitely something that we're going to continue to explore moving forward. So yeah, I think, you know, we definitely see the power of it and, uh, and, you know, we'll continue to experiment with it. Sounds good. Uh, it's uh, it's funny how you said at the beginning there that, uh, you know, live shopping is not is not a new thing. And that's the oldest thing is shopping live, going to the market and shopping, right? That's We've always, that is fair. <laughs> live stream shopping is a bit is a is a, is a little bit newer, though. Um, OK, listen, we're, we're going to we're going to wrap up. Final question. What's your favorite part of the hobby, your favorite aspect of the hobby that uh, that just gets you excited to, to go to work every day? I like, I like how personal it is for people. And it, it was the same thing that I loved about my last job that I love about this one. I like working in something that people love. I like working in something that you don't have to, you know, when you tell someone what you do and if they're a collector and it means something to them, their eyes light up and they talk your ear off about it. And I, I think that's amazing that you just, 
to me, like there's only a few things on this planet that fall into that category. And this is one of them. Um, and that's the part that that's the part that I that I really love. And we get stories all the time from people who, you know, bring things to us to consign. And they'll often tell us the story that goes along with it. And they're like deeply personal stories of what that thing meant to them or meant to somebody in their family. And, and it's it's just awesome. And then, you know, on the other side, when people buy stuff, I just love seeing people geek out about the stuff that they buy, whether it's like, you know, they got their hand on something that's been a grail for them or they completed a collection or they're going to give it to a to a kid or a sibling or whatever it might be. So it's to me, it's just the passion of it that that I love. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a great answer, man. That, that, that's a really good answer. So let everyone know that uh, your company, Golden Auctions, their current auction closes on the ticker right here closes october 2nd and 3rd you can bid at goldenauctions.com check it out if you are interested in seeing what they have for sale uh one final question from troy what do you collect for your personal collection it's a little bit of a hodgepodge but i'm a big uh player collector of ken griffey jr i have a ton of griffey uh sandy koufax i have all of koufax's cards ever um, and I keep like upgrading them. Um, Ted Williams as a Red Sox fan. And then it's just people that I like. So it's just, you know, it's, it's a random group. So it will be, you know, some of the favorite athletes you mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, and just random things that have spoken to me, you know, over the years, uh, that, that I'll collect, but I tend to be a player collector. So what I'll do is I'll, pick a player and then I'll try to get every single card from that player. Um, and then when I'm done, I'll move on to a new player while I continue to upgrade the cards I have of that player. So it's a pretty nasty habit, but uh, that's that's what I collect on my own. It's a great answer, man. I love it. I got a Koufax rookie myself. I was one of my big buys of the national probably 10 years ago. And I, and I love it to this day. All right, man, listen, thank you so much for joining Sam. This was a great discussion. Uh, you're a great guest. I really appreciate all your insights, well-thought-out answers. I want to thank the chat, everybody, for joining us. We will be back. I will be back in about 15 minutes with David Rosfoli from Guess the Grade. He's he's like he's a professionally trained grader. Lots of insights into grading, maybe some tips and tricks. We will see. Be sure to join us back. I'm going to take a quick break and then come live again on a, on a new broadcast on the Sports Cards Live channel. If, uh, if you are just joining us for the first time tonight, welcome to the show. Thank you to Sam and Golden for bringing more viewers to my show, Sports Cards Live. If you're not subscribed yet to the channel, please go ahead and do so. If you've enjoyed this video tonight, this, this discussion, hit the thumbs up button. If you haven't enjoyed the video tonight, hit the thumbs up button. Both work for me. Sam, you wait right there. Everybody else, we'll see you in a few minutes uh, with David. David, if you are out there, give me about... 12 minutes, but show up in seven. We'll see you in the back room and back next week with Sports Cards Live again and tomorrow night on the Collectible YouTube channel, Collectible app with Carbon Chung for Collectible Live at seven o'clock Eastern. Hope to see you all there. This show is now over. Sam, hang tight. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.